0: Welcome back. It's Across the Pond and you are listening. It's episode three. We're back. It's absolutely miserable outside here in London. Barry, what's it like there in Johannesburg? The absolute opposite. It's the typical African sweltering heat. So if you see me
1: sweating through my eyeballs during this, I do apologize.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Well, let's uh, not forget the jingle. Welcome. across the the pond. Again, as I said, welcome back, Uh, we're now into the full swing of this podcast uh definitely starting to get some listeners from around the world uh really really pleased to see some of those stats coming through so you know we are incredibly grateful uh, that you are tuning in and uh yeah i mean today is quite a busy episode we've had a lot going on this week, and clearly a lot of a lot of downtime uh, on you and my part uh, so we've added quite a lot to this list uh hopefully <laughs> it's not going to be uh, an incredibly long one um, but i think it's an exciting episode ahead don't you think barry
1: I think so as well. It's one of those weeks where so much has happened that you would do injustice if you didn't cover all of these topics. So, we're hoping we'll get through all of them um, and hopefully share some interesting stuff and
0: have some good conversation. Sounds good. Let's get to it. The week that was. So, the first thing on the week that was, uh, this was uh, quite an interesting one, really. Uh, The most polarizing, I'd say, uh, release in terms of the product space in the last uh, couple of years. Definitely Tesla unveiling its Cybertruck. Now, Barry, what were your first thoughts?
1: It's, it's a typical Tesla move, and I to be honest, I loved it. I loved the whole <laughs> spectacle, I loved the drama, I loved the, the polarization, I loved everyone shouting at each other. It was a really, really entertaining uh, release and a really entertaining unveiling. Yep. I think that the Cybertruck is something that we've been waiting for for Tesla for a while, and everyone was a bit curious as to what they were going to do about it. And uh, to see what Elon and the team did was uh, fantastic.
0: I mean, there's so many things to talk about here. So, uh, you know, you've, you've kind of split out some of, the, some of the basic points. So, I mean, let's get started on the first one. I think the elephant in the room, um, obviously, this is a big Cybertruck. So, you know, elephant being an apt animal to choose here. But let's talk about the design. I mean, uh, this looks like you or my drawing as a kid <laughs> um, in terms of very hard lines. Uh, you know, nothing that uh, we would have expected coming out uh, from this manufacturer.
1: Definitely. It's, it's one of those designs that's got people talking because it's so unique and so bizarre. And as you say, it looks rather rudimentary. Um, and what you can see is that they've definitely seen the fact that in order to make a splash in this new market they yeah. can't have their car look like everything, everyone else right and 100%. pickup trucks in, in America and across the world look very much the same like you can look at the models and they all kind of look the same um, they kind of do the same thing and so they knew they had to make some sort of splash and yeah. so they come out with this thing that looks like it's out of a sci-fi movie slash from a six-year-old's notebook like a weird mix of the two <laughs> um, and from a design perspective I can't imagine driving that thing around um, <laughs> I think if, you, if, if you're only listening to this, go and look for a picture online. I can't imagine driving this. I don't know if
0: you can, Chad. I, I, I definitely can't. I mean, unless I picture myself in some sort of sci-fi type movie. Um, but I mean, look, let's look at sort of interesting design choices in the past. I mean, you're, you're wearing the, the AirPods, which, you know, when they were first released, um, many, a, many a meme was released um, in that. And, you know, now uh, it's, it's mainstream. So potentially we'll see a lot of these things uh, cruising our streets, uh, certainly, when they when they first start, it's going to be a weird prospect. But yeah, I mean, bold design move, as you said. I think the Ford, uh, one of the Ford, uh, you know, trucks has has definitely kind of set the tone for what these things look like these days, and all manufacturers kind of pulling inspiration from that. Um, whereas on on this one, you know, not just in terms of the lines and and the the sort of main profile of the vehicle, but even some things like the lighting uh, in the front, you know. Really interesting choices here, and uh, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I mean, what do you think in terms of the, the, the AirPods and how those became mainstream? Um, do you think we're going to adapt to this uh, you know, polarizing design?
1: Yeah, I actually read a lot about this because I was trying to understand why they would do something like they did. And there's a lot of uh, communicators and journalists and guys have been trying to unravel this mystery as to why they this, this design was the final one. Yeah. I think one of the reasons that they did this was because, like in the AirPods case... Earphones looked the same forever, right? And everyone had the same looking earphones. And if you wanted to signal like the brand strength that Apple has, they decided to go with something that looked a little bit out there, a little bit out of the comfort zone, but something you wouldn't miss if you were walking around, right? If you walk past someone with Air- AirPods right in the beginning, you wouldn't miss them. Yeah. And you would know that they're an Apple fan yeah. and an Apple uh, customer. So what Apple did was they leveraged their brand strength to change the way the whole industry looks at something like earphones. And I think Tesla's trying to do the same thing. They knew if they put out a pickup truck that looked exactly like the Ford F-150, but just an electric version, you wouldn't even notice as it was driving around. This thing you're going (laughs) to notice. This thing's going to come past your house and you're going to notice it and you're going to realize that's an electric pickup truck that looks like it's from Blade Runner and it's going to come past your house and you're going to (laughs) know that that person's driving a Tesla. So for the kind of people who are Tesla fans, who are fanatics about this company and really believe in Elon's vision, this is going to be a status symbol, hopefully, that's going to really change the way the picker market is going. And so I really applaud the decision. It's it's really rare you see these kinds of out there designs and things that are taking risks. And so whether it's going to work or not, I don't know, but I applaud the the ingenuity and kind of the, the risk taking to be able to say, we're going to put a pig in the sand. We can say, this is what a Tesla semi-truck looks like. <laughs>
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, what's what's uh, innovation if if not that? I mean, if we if we look at the the rest of the design, obviously uh one of the key things in in designing a motor vehicle is the aerodynamics. And I'm not in, I'm not an aeronautical engineer. I I certainly should uh consult one of my mates who is But I mean, this thing's actually got some impressive specs in terms of the speeds that that it can go uh, off of a fully electric motor with this design. In terms of engineering achievements, what what do you sort of make of that?
1: Yeah, so it's typical Tesla again, coming out and putting out specs that are even better than their diesel and their petrol counterparts, right? And if I remember correctly, I think the truck can go from 0 to 60 miles per hour in about three seconds, which is crazy. And so the specs are, as you say, are amazing, and and the load strength, the amount it can pull, all of those specs are well ahead of the rest and kind of world class, and you'd expect that from a Tesla vehicle. Um, And so it really shows how technology is pushing forward, and Tesla's really on the cutting edge of that pushing what can a car do these days, what can a truck do, yep. um, and utilizing all the engineering chops that are available. at. I mean, I, I'm thinking about it, if I'm an engineer, I want to be working at Tesla, right? <laughs> so you can't help but think they must have all the best engineers in the world, you would think. And so obviously, like, this is going to be tip top. And I, I, I'm not a truck person, and I've never even driven a semi truck. <laughs> but from the specs that I've seen and the videos that I've seen, it looks incredible. And so I'm really curious to see how it's going to do
0: in the market when it finally gets to production. Now, I know we're still on the first point, uh, which is the design, but uh, I certainly have to touch it. It's left a lot of questions, this release, um, with the ATV that they brought onto the back. So there's basically an extending ramp that really just comes from the back of the the truck which is something that i think is incredibly convenient for uh, you know for anyone who needs to load something up onto the vehicle but with this atv inside the truck it almost looks even more complete so more questions there do you think they're going to release this as a sort of second secondary product to this cybertruck
1: I would certainly hope so. It kind of goes in that bucket of their flamethrower and their hats <laughs> and all the crazy stuff that they've sold over yep. the past. And so, I, I completely agree with you. When that was in the back of the truck, it looked a lot more reasonable. It looks yeah. a lot more respectable <laughs> for some reason. And I've seen a lot of photoshops, a lot of memes about it since the unveiling of people putting other stuff on the truck. So, semi-automatic rifles and crazy stuff in the back. And it just looks better with something in the back. Yeah. Um, and so, I think, it's, I think it's one of those things where I think the ATV is going to be a sideline product. But you never know. I, it looked super cool and uh, if you're a tesla fan you're obviously going to buy one if it comes out so
0: you'd think they would put it out for at least in a limited edition definitely i think uh yeah so just just the last one on this point um in terms of looking inside the truck again something incredibly unconventional uh, if you have only seen the sort of outside i definitely advise to kind of go and watch one of the youtube videos that shows you inside because it definitely makes you question what we need in a car in terms of buttons knobs uh, all of those types of things really all it is is a marble looking type uh, you know sort of uh, really like a shelf um upon which there is a obviously steering wheel that comes out and really a uh, electric screen. Um, so again, interesting design choices, but uh, I mean if we think about it, how many how many buttons and knobs do we really need inside a cockpit?
1: And that's the beauty of electric vehicles, right? It's a computer on wheels. That's all it is at the end of the day. And so, uh, w- what you can do inside is open up all of that space, and it, I'm I'm assuming it feels a lot more spacious and a lot more more airy inside a car like that. And again, it, it comes from Elon's like willingness to look at things from first principles and not just do the status quo, not just copy the the rest of the market, but to actually say, like you like you said. Do we need this? Do we need this and this and this and this and this on the dashboard, right? Yeah. And you take that away and simplicity of design really comes through. And so they really are pushing the pushing the boundaries. And I hope that other car manufacturers are taking, taking heed from this and are building some new cool vehicles that we'll see in the next
0: couple of years. Yeah. And I mean, a consequence of all of that extra space is that you've got an extra seat in the front. I mean, we've seen trucks in the past have a, a kind of a half seat. It's really a, a bit of a squeeze for anyone uh, going in there, but this is a, a full-sized third seat that sits next to the driver, um, you know, between the driver and the passenger seat. So as you say, definitely uh, some benefits from that extra space. Now, I think again, uh, one of the other elephants in the room, if anyone watched the actual release, there was a, uh, basically, a uh, why don't you fill us in there, Barry? <laughs> it was one of, the f- <laughs>
1: one of the funniest moments I think I've ever seen in internet history. And uh, <laughs> the memes that have come out of it have been unbelievable. Yeah. so what happened was Tesla unveiled this truck and they unveiled what they call the armor glass which is this crazy crazy new form of glass that's going to replace all the windshields and all that kind of stuff and uh, in typical like product reveal fashion they're trying to make it as dramatic and as interesting as possible so they bring out this guy in this all black leather suit and uh, they show what happens if you throw a big metal ball at a traditional windscreen or a traditional piece of glass and the glass shatters and just gets destroyed then they pull out the Tesla cyber and um, what is it, armor a glass, yep. and uh, they take turns dropping this metal ball onto the glass from various heights. So they start from like two meters, and it doesn't doesn't even dent, doesn't do anything, bounces off. They do it from five meters, ten meters, and then from right from the top of like a ladder. And it's all very impressive, and it's all great, and everyone's ooing and ahhing, and everyone's yep. writing and tweeting and all that stuff. <laughs> and then Elon says to the guy, "Come and throw the ball at the car," with the, the car on stage behind where he's standing. And so the guy picks up the ball and throws it at the car window and the whole window just smashes. and you can see Elon just die a little bit inside as yeah. that happens and you hear him say oh god <laughs> and it's one of the fun, one of the most like awkward moments ever because product demos are like notorious for going wrong like you can go and watch compilations of product demos going wrong all around the all around the world all the time and uh, so to see a, a tesla demo where the whole glass just shatters then he says try the other one and he tries the other other window and that also shatters and he has to do the rest of the presentation with the broken windows behind him as the backdrop. It was it was one of the funniest epic fails I think I've ever seen, and it's and it's yeah. been a, the talk of the town recently. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I thought it was very amusing. I don't know if what you thought, Chad.
0: Oh absolutely. I think you 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 basically painted the perfect uh, picture there in in terms of what it actually represented for anyone listening who hasn't seen it. Uh, certainly search it because it, it it is hilarious. Um but yeah, I mean just in terms of 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 what actually happened, uh, I haven't really looked too deeply into it uh, following the actual release. But as you say, I mean, obviously the the initial test uh, was pre set up, so they had kind of measured the you know the distance from the glass and obviously the sort of acceleration that the metal ball would have come to when it hit the glass and the point of contact and make sure that you know it didn't crack. But what do you think? What do you think happened in terms of the actual vehicle and the actual uh, sort of experiment that they conducted there? Do you think it was just a case of faulty glass or simply just uh, somebody giving it a bit too much force? What were your takes on that? It's really
1: hard to say. And from what everything I've read afterwards, I don't think even they know at this stage. Because I saw another video of Elon and them trying it again after the, the event. And literally in one of the back rooms throwing the, the the ball as they did on stage. And it was fine. It bounced off like it should have. Right. And so I don't think anyone really knows what, what happened. A lot of the time with these kind of product demos like we must remember this thing is only shipping in 2021 right so this is a prototype yep. and so things are going to go wrong um, and often, if you're coming up to a big launch and you've kind of told the media and everything, you might be pushing deadlines to get this thing ready to be presented on a, on a stage, and it might not be 100% there. So you might find that this prototype vehicle, this prototype glass wasn't 100% there, and maybe they will get to a stage where it is unbreakable glass going yeah. forward. Um, but unfortunately, that's what matters on the day when you're in front of all the media, in front of the world, and you don't want something like that, something like that to happen. Sure. So I don't know why, I, I don't think they know why, but it was a little bit embarrassing and awkward and uh, really tested Elon's presentation skills to be able to continue with the whole thing yeah. with the broken glass behind him.
0: Yep. Yeah. And uh, I mean, let's, let's touch on that 2021 release. This for me feels like quite a long lead time in terms of, releasing something getting the hype up getting in those pre-orders and then ultimately uh, having someone having to wait two years to actually get their get their uh, production model vehicle i'm not a particular motorhead so i'm not sure if this is normal or not in the industry to me it feels like a bit of a test for demand Um, given the design what is your take on that is this something that is normal or do you think they are kind of testing the waters a bit
1: I I think it's something else. I think it's a proactive measure to avoid it leaking from somebody else, right? Right. So I think as the tech world has got more and more in vogue and more people care about it, you see leaks of every major piece of tech way before it gets announced on the actual stage, right? And so these companies are fighting to keep the designs in-house and keep everyone quiet and keep everything quiet so that no one finds out before it's ready. So I think that these product launches are getting earlier and earlier and earlier to try and get ahead of the guys who are gonna leak the designs and leak the things that they can have the first word on it. So I agree with you. I think the lead time is crazy, and and all the pre-orders don't mean much because it's still two years away. And also, yeah. from a Tesla perspective, 2021 announced by Tesla actually means 2022, 2023, because they've never met any of their deadlines <laughs> throughout the whole process, right? Yeah. And so it's it's I think it's a measure of avoiding the leaks, and as you say, getting a sense of whether this is actually going to work or not, and what kind of demand there is. The problem with trying to use this as a gauge of demand is that you've got these super fans who are going to buy anything you put out and so you can't look at those super fans as indication of genuine demand in the marketplace you need to be able to look beyond those super fans to like an average person who doesn't care about tesla as a company but does this product really serve a need for that customer and that is hard to figure out unless you actually have them in production and are getting actual feedback from customers so that's kind of my take on it i don't know what you think chad
0: yeah, that team spot on. Um, yeah, so let's move on to the next one. Again, as I said, a, a bit of a busy week. This side in London, Uber's operating license has been withdrawn. So this was withdrawn essentially from Transport for London, uh, TFL being the body that essentially owns and uh, basically runs the bulk of the, the public transport system, all of the tube lines, all of the buses. And uh, basically, they're at the end of a two-month probationary period. It's basically now come out that drivers have been able to fake their identities through a glitch in the app. And uh, essentially there has been at least 14,000 unauthorized trips. What would you feel if the person who is coming on the app arrives and uh, it's actually not the person's name? Uh, So essentially the face will be the same because this glitch allowed the people to replace their photos. But the driving profile is actually somebody else's. How would you feel? It's,
1: it's actually a very topical subject here in South Africa. There's been a lot of crime that's come from people pretending to be other people or utilizing fake licenses or just not being the Uber driver that you, the app says it is, right? Yeah. And uh, there's been huge controversy here in South Africa because this kind of crime is obviously quite prevalent here and it becomes violent in a lot of a lot of cases. And so Uber and these ride-sharing apps have had to fight this with various technology and various measures. I actually went to a summit about, before I went traveling, so about two or three months ago, run by Uber called Technology for Safety, where they chatted about a lot of these various issues, trying to talk about how do we verify the background check of a driver, how do we make sure it's the person they say it is, how do we make sure that all of the various checks that go into making sure that driver is legit actually happen and one of the downsides of an app like Uber is that they're out of the relationship completely because it's independent contractor yep. coming to pick you up. Uber's not really involved. And so if they if they miss it at the beginning when the guy is signing up or when he's like getting onto the app, if they miss it then, it's very hard to catch these guys because yep. as you say, um, a lot of people aren't vigilant and aren't kind of looking at the guy with a skeptical view and saying cool is this the right name is it the right person the right number plate etc yep. <clears throat> so i think it's i think it's dangerous i think that it's worrying i think that as a consumer we have to really take precautions to make sure it is the right car and the right person but on the other side i think uber and these kind of companies are going to come under increasing pressure to make sure these background checks are watertight and a glitch in the app is simply not good enough
0: 100 percent. i completely agree and i think i think they should Although they, as you say, are, are kind of a little bit devoid or kind of, uh, you know, split out from from the the situation, they they should certainly make sure that the app is watertight and you know these these types of things can't happen because when I when I when a vehicle pulls up and the number plate matches up and the person's photo matches the face of the guy who's uh, sitting in front of me, you know, I'm kind of none the wiser and uh, little do you know that person might actually be an an un- unauthorised driver. So. I think they have done some things in the meantime to kind of try and, and fix fix the app and the glitches, but it's certainly going to be interesting to see what happens from, from now. I believe that they are going to appeal this decision. Um, so yeah, it's for the moment, there will still be Uber vehicles in London for I think they have 21 days or something to lodge this uh, appeal, but certainly in the next coming months, it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. In terms of one of the other bits uh, of what happened this last week, so Twitter... Has Changed their terms of use and uh, with that they've actually threatened to cull a bunch of accounts so any account that hasn't been used within the last six months you have the deadline up till the 11th of December to log into the app and essentially accept the updated privacy policies now I think this kind of gets into a bit of a wider discussion in terms of what these privacy policies contain. I have not looked at them. I'm not sure about you, but when I download a new app, I certainly don't go through all of the fine print. I mean, a lot of the time, we are essentially signing our lives away and, and giving companies ownership to our, our data. So what do you make about this move of a, a kind of, we going to be deleting all the accounts you have to sort of accept or you're out?
1: Yeah, I... I kind of hold a contrarian view here to what I've seen on the internet. I've seen a lot of outrage—not outrage, that's too strong a word—but a lot of discussion, a lot of um, cynicism about this new this new uh, policy. Yeah. Um, I I think that to to make it the 11th of December and give people no time to actually like figure out what this means, I think that's a bit short, and maybe they could have done it a bit a longer period. But I think that these inactive accounts are just a a waste of space and time for Twitter's perspective, right? So when it comes to broadband, when it comes to hosting these, when it comes to reporting numbers and trying to report like accurate representations of what's happening on the service, the the accounts, and there's a huge amount that haven't been active for a long, long time, are actually just clogging up the system. And so I can understand exactly why Twitter are doing it. It also, it also contributes a lot of these accounts are the kinds of accounts that are used by bots or used by yeah. mass click farms and those kinds of things around the world. And so I can understand this move from Twitter's perspective. And maybe it's not implemented in a great way, but I understand it completely. When it comes to the privacy policy, I completely agree. I think that when these things are buried in terms of conditions, it's really worrying. And like you say, I don't read any of that stuff. I don't think anyone I know does. It's one of those like black boxes where you just kind of sign and you move on and you don't actually know what's in there. And actually last night I was telling you offline about an event I went to. There was a company there who was trying to, Apply AI to privacy policies. Oh, right. So what they do is they will read the privacy policy with machine learning and pull out what they call loopholes, what they call contentious issues, what they call um, things to look out for, and give you like a three or four bullet points as to what this privacy, what are the most important pieces of this privacy wow. policy are. And I think that's really cool. I, I, I was very impressed by them, and I'm going to keep following their journey as they go along. I can't quite remember their name, but they're very, very new, and they're kind of applying this to, to privacy policies just in South Africa at the moment. Um, and so I think we need more of that kind of tech to help an ordinary citizen, to help an average Joe actually understand what they're signing away. When it comes to Twitter... I, for one, am for it. I I, I think the inactive accounts should go. Um, I'm curious to know if you have a different opinion, Chad.
0: No, I definitely agree, especially, as you say, when it comes to bots. I think it also inflates the follower count on a lot of people's profiles. And certainly, they are a business at the end of the day. And as you say, they need to report results. And they've kind of had to change their metric. Instead of saying users, they've had to, you know, put an extra definition that might not be necessary which is active users type of thing and it, it certainly does uh cloudy things up and just adds a level of complexity that's that's probably not necessary um and certainly you know in terms of bot accounts and and those kinds of things i completely agree but yeah just in terms of that tech uh, that you mentioned i think that's that's fascinating and that that's you know we, we're we going to talk about one of your blog posts that you wrote um in the next section which i think we'll we'll touch on this really really well in terms of sort of how artificial intelligence can actually scan through and, and really make uh, human-like evaluations in terms of the, the salient points. But on a, on a bigger sort of discussion, do you not think some of these companies should be giving us a sort of five or six point bullet uh, in terms of the, the simple simple things, salient points here? And if you want to read the full article, have a link to, to click on those.
1: Without a doubt, it's really silly that we need this kind of tech to comb through this legalese, right? It's completely unnecessary and it's a waste of everybody's time. The guy's writing it and the guy's reading it. And so I, I think we need more accountability and we need more activism when it comes to short, easy to read in a language that we can understand uh, language that can then be applied to these privacy policies. Where the company struggle is that they are looking to cover their legal exposure across the board, right? So they'll work with a lawyer and the lawyer will say, we need to cover every single loop poll in case we get we get sued for anything and that's kind of a, a side effect of the litigious nature of the u.s specifically um, and also just people looking to look out for themselves and so it's a tug it's a tug of war between the guys who want to cover every single legal possibility and the guys who are reading it who don't understand all that language so yeah we, we need some we need some change there
0: well let's see what happens on that front i think that covers this week it was a busy one but on to the next insert Stuff I found interesting
1: Alright, so this one comes out of left field a little bit So you're going to have to bear with me Um, I promise you it's a good one (laughs) I watched a short film It's about an 18 minute film called Lorena Um, done by an Argentinian director and it follows the story of an 11 year old kid in Argentina who won a beauty pageant and then kind of was put into one of the major parades in Buenos Aires right so it's a short film looking at how the adults around this 11 year old girl kind of use her as a prop as this beauty pageant winner and she actually doesn't want to be there so For me, like beauty pageants, I really hate them. I really don't think they're good for society. I really have like real problems with people putting these girls in crazy amounts of makeup and dresses and putting them on stage and forcing them to look a certain way. And it kind of promotes the wrong ideals, I think, for women uh, worldwide. And so to see this kind of thing at an 11-year-old level, what the film does is it shows that she doesn't want to be there. And she doesn't want to be put through all of this. And she's not happy at all and what the, what the director does really really well is that it, to, con- to contrast what the adults want from her and what she wants they show her face the entire 18 minutes yep. but she doesn't say barely anything right yep. all the audio is the adults around her talking about why this is important why she must wear this crown that she wears why she must do this why she needs all the hairspray etc 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 and it becomes very clear from watching it that her facial expressions show she's a prisoner inside of this her family and friends right and her family and friends around her are using her as a prop i don't know if it's to make money or just to kind of like boast about her or whatever the story is so it's a really fascinating short film that i really enjoyed and i, w- I wanted to share with everybody just to show how you can build empathy with no like directorial commentary so the director or the narrator doesn't say anything he just yep. lets you watch this and he lets you draw your own interpretations from what you're seeing and lets the story speak for itself in a world where a lot of documentaries are very much i'm going to tell you what's right and i'm going to tell you this and this and this and like it feels a little bit on the nose this is not that at all he literally just puts the footage in front of you and says listen make of this what you will and i found that a very like fascinating way of of, of directing a film so what yeah. do you think chad did you have a chance to watch it at all
0: so i saw the link pop up on our on our sort of uh, shared document and I had I had it's about 18 minutes long I think. I had had the time so watched through it and it is absolutely emotive, I'd say is the word to use. It it definitely builds empathy from the start to the end. And yeah, just in terms of as you say the that contrast between the silence uh, but a lot of sort of, you know, visual expression from her face and, you know, as you say basically her, the expectations of of her family. And Essentially, it's uh, this. This short film has won a lot of accolades. Uh, it, I think, was released in twenty thirteen. I mean, it's it's you know kind of come out in in first prize in in Madrid, uh, you know Freiburg, uh, quite quite a few film festivals, and I and I definitely think it's it's worth it. I definitely think it's worth the watch as well. Um, you know, and and as you say, sort of the wider the wider discussion of of you know is this something you want to be doing, or are you kind of a prisoner rather at, at somebody else's. Uh, Somebody else's will. So yeah, I think it's definitely a worthwhile watch and uh, basically tugs on the heartstrings, certainly towards the end. I think also fascinating for for me was how, and I, I guess this is kind of a, a bigger question as well. How some of the questions she was asked, she kind of she was given the choice of answering the question, but when it came down to it, ultimately she had no call in the decision for example when basically this massive crown which weighs sort of four kgs was cast upon her head this as we said sort of small 11 year old girl who now has to you know walk around in this thing it's it's heavy it hurts um you know kind of the the the, basically the measures they go to to put this thing on in terms of putting numbing cream and sprays on this on this little girl's head um essentially all of all of the questions in terms of how tight it should be uh, her responses at at the time, you know, seemed seemed genuine, but when it came down to it, her mother kind of just proceeded anyway. What were your thoughts on that? And do you think this is normal in society? You know, are we are we kind of being a bit too tough on on kids, or is this kind of just a an, an outright case?
1: Yeah, I, I think for me, it kind of it kind of pulled out the parallel of what we call the tiger moms in Asia. So we've seen a similar type story with, with, with parents in Asia who are so desperate for their kids to succeed that yeah. they put them through crazy amounts of tutoring and extra work and extra work and they don't really have a childhood. Right from like say age nine or 10, they have to be like doing maths homework all the time and computer science and, and they come out with amazing results at the end of the day. Yeah. But in all the interviews with them, you find out that they actually weren't happy during that period. And so that's kind of the parallel that I drew and so I think I do see it a lot in the world and beyond just kids and and, and adults it also comes down to the people that affect us right so the metaphor that I pulled out was that there are people around me who have certain ideas of what my life should look like and I often find myself being a prisoner of their expectations or prisoner of their ideas right yeah and so that's where, really, that's where it really spoke to me. Like, I think the kids is an obvious one, like try and let your kid have a happy childhood and actually listen to them and treat them with dignity and respect. But when it comes to adults, we often do the same thing. We put ourselves in the same prisons and we care too much about what our parents think of us, what our friends think of us, what our partner thinks of us, and not enough about what actually makes us happy. And so I'm hoping that this film pulls that out of people and kind of brings the conversation to, you need to do what makes you happy and be able to stand up and accept the fact that not everyone's going to agree with that. And they're going to try and force their agenda on you. They're going to try and force what they want for your life onto you. And it's up to each of us to kind of stand up and say, listen, I I love you. I respect you. I I care for you, but this is my life, right? And I'm going to do what I want to do and that kind of courage is very rare in the society because we care so much about what other people think about us
0: completely agree it's it's a it's a great dialogue to have been opened up by Really thought-provoking, really powerful film. And, and that is the point of film, I think. So thanks for, for looking at this one and, and bringing it up to me. So yeah, just for anyone who wants to see it, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, but it's called La Riena, um in brackets, The Queen. Um, and you can find it on Vimeo. Um, I'm sure you'll find it if you, if you kind of just Google it. So definitely worth the watch. The next one is a movie that Barry has brought up. I haven't seen it. So keen to hear your views.
1: So this one is a lot less profound. Um, it's 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 pure entertainment. It's it's a movie called Tolkien, and it's yeah. about the great writer J.R.R. Tolkien, right? And uh, why I brought it up was because I I was a huge fan of the Lord of the Rings. I still am, and I think it's one of the greatest trilogies ever written. And so Tolkien is one of those great writers who really redefined the fantasy genre of of novels. And what this movie does is it looks at his life as a boy and kind of shows some of the influences and some of the reasons that he came up with all the various things and he built Middle-earth, right? And why the movie is so powerful is that it ostensibly is a movie about language. It's talking about how Tolkien built this world off the basis of a language that he invented when he was 11 or 12 years old, Right. Right. So, in fantasy, a lot, of these, a lot of authors will build these giant worlds with history and with um, people and character backgrounds and, and languages and whatnot. And he kind of started from the language. And one of the most powerful pieces of this movie is, is when he's, he's sitting across the table with his partner at the time, talking about how he can't get the story to work. He's been sitting at his desk for months and he just is at a bit of a, in a bit of a rut. Yeah. And she asks him about the language and she asks him, What do the words mean? And he gives her back a dictionary definition and he, and she kind of stops him and says, no, 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 what do they mean? Right. And what she tries to pull out of him is that every word we use obviously has a dictionary definition. But if we think about it carefully, it has years and years and years of backstories that got the word to be what it is today and all of that meaning and all of that connotation is built into the word and it doesn't and so the sound of saying a word is not that important what that word represents is important and that becomes a, that becomes a metaphor for the rest of his story saying that middle earth is a world that he is building and everything has meaning and that's why there's so much depth in his writing and so much depth in in, the, in that storytelling because he isn't lazy about it yeah. he doesn't just use a word that sounds cool and says cool okay that means that and then just moves on Every word is so specifically chosen and so specifically selected to have all this meaning, all this background, all these Easter eggs behind the scenes that a lot of readers won't even recognize because it's too in-depth. But what it does is it builds this world that you can actually imagine in your head and it makes Lord of the Rings so powerful. So I I thought it was a really cool movie. I think it's a really interesting look at what language means and and how language is so important in in novels and in, in literature. And there are so few authors these days who take that much care with the specific words that they use or they invent or they make up for their fantasy or their sci-fi novels. Um, and so, yeah, that's all I've got to say on that one. I think you should go and have a look at it. I think that he's a fascinating author. And uh, to write The Lord of the Rings, you've got to be someone special. And so this is a story about how he got to become that person.
0: Amazing. That is fantastic. And yeah, I think I, think I should definitely go and check that out. That one, I believe, was released earlier this year. So it wouldn't be on cinema in cinemas at the moment, but I'm sure we'd be able to find them on, on kind of some streaming services or or something like that. So yeah, I I definitely will be watching that. Uh, haven't got through all of the Lord of the Rings, but uh, certainly enjoyed some of the uh, movies as well. Chad,
1: Chad, Chad. Okay. First watch the Lord of the Rings. First watch the Lord of the Rings and then get to talk.
0: Cool. Um, Now that I have uh, clearly offended someone, (laughs) let's move on to the next thing. Looking ahead.
1: All right, so our next section is looking ahead, where we look to the future of technology, the future of the world, and we kind of have a sense of what's happening in the next five to 10 years. And uh, in today's version, we're going to look first at a bit of gear because we are both huge gearheads and we love buying tech. I was saying to Chad the other day, we off, we buy too much gear sometimes. Um, but there's been some really interesting, really interesting launches in the last little bit, mostly focused around Apple. Um, they've launched a brand new MacBook Pro and also some new headphones. Um, and the MacBook Pro is the Apple's like, leading device, it is their most powerful device, and so a brand new one always brings a lot of controversy, a lot of discussion, and mostly about the keyboard. So I'm gonna leave it to you, Chad, what do you think about the new MacBook Pro and the, the new keyboard that actually is the old keyboard?
0: Yeah, so as you said, they've kind of come out now and uh, and basically gone back on one of their previous models, um, essentially with this keyboard design. So previously we were under the scissor mechanism, uh, then they changed it to the butterfly mechanism, and uh, yeah, now we're back to the scissor again. So essentially this is their second MacBook Pro that they've released this year. Uh, there is already a 2019 model. This is the 16 inch. And uh, yeah, what you've seen people raving about is something as simple as the keyboard. So I'm not sure if you've seen much about this in the press, but uh, what do you think, Barry?
1: Yeah, so I've seen a lot about it in the press. Uh, I, I haven't actually used the butterfly keyboard myself, so I don't know why everyone is so angry, but everyone is angry about the yeah. butterfly keyboard. And I've seen so many like scathing hit pieces about this keyboard. And it's fascinating to see... like. As you say, the keyboard doesn't seem like it should be that big a deal when it comes to specs and there's a lot of other things to focus on. But when this, when the original laptop came out, everyone was talking about the keyboard and everyone realized, okay, this is why I care about a keyboard because a bad one is really annoying. Yeah. And so it's interesting to see them like listening to the market, listening to all the people talking about it and going back to what they were at beforehand. So I think it's interesting. I think that's Apple have got a lot better at listening to their audience and listening to the people who care about their products. Um, I think during the Steve Jobs era, they just kind of went straight ahead and didn't really care what anyone else thought. They were just designing what they thought was best. Um, and when you don't have a Steve Jobs to, to, to make that vision, it becomes a bit difficult, right? And so mm-hmm. you actually do need to listen to the market. Um, have, you, have you used any of these keyboards, Chad?
0: So I actually own a butterfly keyboard myself. Um, I went into it knowing that it was very controversial and has received a lot of hatred along the web. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of the, the reasons for it, the fact that the new model is slightly thicker leads me to believe that one of the reasons they went for this butterfly sort of a mechanism was to, you know, reduce the, the footprint of, of the actual laptop. Now, one of the things with the, with the keyboard and obviously the more conventional types is the, the travel. Travel being the amount that the key actually moves when your finger strikes it. Secondly, it was quite noisy. So yeah, you basically hear clickety clack, uh, quite loud. It could come across as a bit of a trivial issue, but when you're in a quiet room, you are the most annoying guy in the room. <laughs> and uh, and of course, uh, you know the, the the sort of other thing is is reliability. So these butterfly keys had developed a susceptibility to sticky keys. So you would basically push a key, and it would sort of repeat the key three or four times. Um, and so as a result of that, Apple released a sort of protection program where they would replace these defective keyboards if they arose. Not every single one of them had this issue, but if your keyboard did have that issue, basically it would be covered under this program. And that was seen for the 2019 MacBook Pro. Now obviously we've seen a new one released. They're clearly getting annoyed with uh, basically the wrong move that they made themselves. And as you say, I think it's great that they are listening to feedback this being something that has caused a lot of MacBook users to switch to Windows. Yeah. So it clearly was something that was very important. And I think if users have other things on their shopping list, I've heard loads of people talking about USB-C coming to the iPhone. Hopefully they'll be listening to that because I think that's annoying a couple of people as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's the one thing. The next thing is the new Beats headphones. So now we're still on the Apple topic. Uh, As you know, I'm sure Beats by Dre got acquired by Apple a couple of years back. And these new headphones have been released with noise cancelling. So I wanted just to talk about the sort of wider shift in headphones and why we all care about noise cancelling so much. I mean, obviously we've had essentially the bose the qc35s these being the staple noise cancelling release which which came out a couple of years ago and uh, sony following up with a a much better product uh, that a lot of sort of uh, commentators have made that view known and uh, and now a couple of years later apple throws one of theirs in the mix uh, behind the beats by dre logo what do you think Barry? Yeah, so this one I'm well out of my depth because I I don't own many like
1: high-end headphones. I haven't really used many high ed- high-end headphones. Um, and so I've, I've, I've been watching these kind of um, changes in the market and, and changes in the way we think about headphones, but I haven't really been a user myself. So I was hoping you'd be able to tell me a little bit about your experience and, and, and why you think noise cancelling is important, if, it, if you think it is, and uh, where headphones are going in the future. Like we, We're clearly moving to a wireless headphone, that's pretty clear, but what do you think are some of the, the lesser
0: known trends that you're seeing in the space? In terms of the the importance of noise cancelling, I think being a a world and, 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 you know, sort of a globe that that travels a lot these days, I think uh, being able to cut out the sort of jets on an airplane is a very useful thing to do and helps people sleep a a little bit better, I believe. Also, in terms of public transport, I think you know being in a, being on a tube or being in a bus and just kind of cutting out some of that noise is is important. And I mean, noise pollution is something that we, we're thinking about a lot more these days. Uh, noise pollution actually has an effect on your subconscious, your mental clarity. I've I've certainly seen studies for for all of these things. So being able to put on a a, a headset and basically drown out. All of the unwanted noise around you, I think, is a powerful tool to have. So, very interesting to see where this market is going. So, I think that covers us from this week in terms of looking ahead. Should we move on to the next thing? Let's do it. Develop and grow. Right, so we're on to the develop and grow section. So this, obviously, the more sort of self-helpy kind of part of our podcast. I don't like that that word is stigmatized because you know we should strive to be better people. So basically, on this one, I had a sort of off the air discussion with Barry a couple of weeks back. In terms of the effects of journaling, now it's not something that I've ever done myself, but I've definitely seen it come across on you know various influences and and certainly research uh, just in terms of clarifying your thoughts, forcing you to to think about what happened during the day, you know getting gratitude from all of those processes. And I really just wanted to find out from Barry, uh, who is an active journaler, how it's affected him, and uh, yeah, I mean the positive effects. Should this be something that we do? Sure. So so like you say, I, I've been doing it on and off for a long
1: time now and have found various benefits from it. The major one for me is that it kind of clears my head of all the junk that accumulates over the week or over the day, right? So the idea is to try and download whatever's going on that's up here, whatever's going on that's crazy and, and emotional things and things that are worrying you and things that, that are concerning you and getting it on paper so you get it out of your head. Right. That kind of mental clarity is what you're aiming for. And journaling is is one way where you yeah. can do that. One way you can sit down and say, cool, these are the five to six things that have been worrying me and I'm going to get it out on paper. And for some reason, when it's out on paper and you can look at it objectively as a third party, it doesn't matter as much as it did in your head. I think a lot of times for someone like me, I overthink yeah. everything. And so in my head is always just a chaotic zoo. And when I get it on paper, I realize, hold on, that actually doesn't matter as much as I thought it does. Or maybe that's not as important as I thought it was. Or maybe I can do something to help that or to to get around that problem or that obstacle. So it's one of those things where I found tremendous benefit in it when it comes to just giving me clarity when I'm not having a good day, when I'm really down or I'm really dealing with something or I'm not in a good space. What that does mean though, which is quite amusing, is that if I go and read those journals a week later or two weeks later or a year later, as I sometimes do, it's hilarious to watch the kinds of things that we worry about as human beings, right? It kind of gives you a little bit of perspective on all the tiny things that are going wrong in my life. I should be incredibly grateful to have those things go wrong to me because I have every opportunity. I live in a good country. I live in a good space. I've got a lot of opportunities. I'm very, very privileged and very grateful for what I have. But in those moments, you forget that. And so it also is a great mechanism to kind of as a rear view mirror to look back and think about, cool, what did my life look like a year ago or two years ago? And, and what kinds of things were I worrying about at that time? Where journaling gets difficult is that it's a difficult habit to get into because it's it's sitting down by yourself without your phone and either handwriting or t- typing right. on a computer and really spilling out some really tough things that, that most times we don't want to share with other people and definitely don't want to share with ourselves. And so getting that habit going is very difficult. And that's where I've failed over time is that I've gone through stages where I haven't been that, in that habit and I kind of go back to it when I'm in real, yeah. real trouble And I kind of use it as a fail-safe mechanism. But when things are good, I'm not doing it. And so for me, I... I, Yeah, Chad, I don't know what you think about that. For me, I haven't been able to do it consistently day after day. I kind of use it as a tool when I'm going through something that's tough.
0: I mean, I think it's a good tool to have. And the fact that it's had positive impacts for you clearly means that it's it's definitely working but yeah as somebody who hasn't done it uh, i'm fascinated in terms of how you basically build those systems and you know make sure that you you do it it sounds it sounds silly we, we, we talk about something like 10 minutes a day let's say uh, i don't know what what your sort of guide is and, and what you follow but we do really find excuses for anything um i i feel um so how how do you get that discipline and make sure that you actually sit down and 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 do this and what is what's the sort of framework for you do you have a kind of list situation do you kind of just list what happened in the day what's your sort of framework what's your sort of timeline Um, and you know looking back in terms of when you failed at keeping up with it what do you think you could do better to to carry it on
1: yeah, so I've tried every modality you could think of. I've tried every time, every paper on computer. I've tried it all. And I think it's one of those things you have to try various ways of doing it to try and find the one way that works for you. So the way that works for me is not going to be the same for everybody. And you've to try and understand yourself to understand, cool, do I enjoy writing things or typing things? Do I enjoy that? Or how, where am I going to do it in my day? Am I going to do it straight after I wake up? Am I groggy in the morning? Should I do it at night? Or should I do it in both places? I think it really depends on you as a person. For me, I'm when I'm consistent with it, I'm doing it every morning as soon as I wake up. So I'm literally rolling out of bed onto my chair in my half-day state, and I'm sitting down with a pen, and normally I'm just writing without any prompts, without any questions, just right. kind of stream of consciousness. I have tried a few times with prompts where you'll have a question or two that you'll yep. answer for that day and that can help when you're in a bit of a rut, you don't know what to write about. Sure. But for someone like me who's got a thousand things in my head all the time, there's never any shortage of material, right? And it's about having the courage and actually the vulnerability to let that spill onto the page. Yep. That's the most difficult thing. The difficult thing is sitting there on the page when you're not having a good day and you kind of you've got a lot of things you're thinking about, or so maybe you made a mistake the day before, or you're feeling really shitty about something, and being able to let that spill into the page without judgment without censoring it yep. you have to remember that no one's gonna read this stuff right the Perfect. idea is not that you're gonna share this online you're not gonna show it to anybody the mm-hmm. idea is that you have to be honest with yourself and so beyond the habit building of just getting the ten minutes every day or whatever it is, that's that's difficult on its own. But what's difficult is being vulnerable enough with yourself to be actually be honest. Because often I when when I started doing it, I found myself writing in like kind of a narrative way, trying yeah. to make myself sound cooler and more with it than I was. Yeah. And after a while you realize, what are you doing this for? Like it's pure <laughs> ego talking the whole time, right? Sure. You actually have to be able to be vulnerable and courageous enough to let the the kinds of things you say to yourself in here, in your head, that you wouldn't say to somebody else, you have to be able to write those down. And that's where it gets difficult. But That's where the value is, right? If you're able to take some of the self-talk that you're saying to yourself every single day and put it on paper and look at it for what it is, you can actually change your life.
0: Well, that's amazing and really powerful. So I definitely am going to try and get into the habit of this and, yeah, employ you too as well because it's worked for so many people. Um, and, yeah, I mean, just as you say, being able to look back in hindsight at what you were worrying about uh, however many days, weeks, months, years ago, um, and actually putting a bit of perspective into your current worries, uh, you know, life's not perfect. We all have challenges and, and worries and insecurities and all of those kinds of things. Um, and I think, yeah, as you say, being able to look at it objectively on a page in front of you is a refreshing way to do it. So Thank you definitely for that.
1: All right, the next one we're gonna look at is interviews. And I'm very proud of Chad for this one. Chad's been on the <laughs> job search for a little while now and uh, got some exciting news yesterday. So we were chatting on WhatsApp last night. Um, and interviews are always a very difficult thing when you go into the job yeah. market, you're trying to find the right fit, you're trying to find the right company, and you actually gotta walk into a room and impress random strangers who don't know you from a bar of soap and try and form some sort of impression. Um, And so Chad, we've spoken a bit offline about interviewing and I know you have some tips from your recent experience. Do you mind sharing some tips with us as to what you've learned in the last couple of days and the interviews you've been on?
0: Yeah, definitely. So, uh, I mean, as you said, uh, I I was kind of in the fortunate position of having to choose between two offers yesterday um, and literally have been interviewing for the last two weeks. Now, this is quite a contrast between when I first moved to London, and it actually took me two months to to find work, I had gone for you know loads and loads of interviews, and I wasn't just getting any bites. Um, so I definitely think in that time um, I've I've grown in terms of the interview skill because interviewing is a skill that you can learn. Um, and yeah, here are some of my tips. So the first point I wanted to make is it's just in terms of of, of South Africans now. You mentioned earlier that you've kind of recognized you're lucky to be uh, coming from a, a great country. Now, sometimes when you're there, you know, you sort of, it's a third world country, sometimes you know we don't feel like we're in we're not in the US we're not in the UK um you know a lot of the things that we do aren't as visible to the rest of the world and and sometimes you know we we feel like we're kind of subpar but i completely want to you know scrap that narrative uh, 100% because we are incredibly capable and we have the potential to to shine really on the world stage um so i want to drop that notion so you know i firstly after moving moving over here that was kind of something that may have been at the back of my mind. And, uh, you know, in, actually in hindsight, we have really good quality education. We are incredibly comp- competent, incredibly diligent people and, you know, people like us. And we are able to to, to shine. So that's the first thing. The second thing is confidence. So basically this podcast i attribute to the success in the last couple of weeks just the the importance of of speaking and having these conversations and uh, you know organizing your thoughts uh, it definitely comes across in an interview that you are, are a logical thinker you can communicate well um, and ultimately that you're you're confident enough to to have difficult discussions you know be frank about what it is that you're looking for be frank about what it is that you're not and you know uh, those sort of meaningful types of, of conversations definitely help. So I would definitely encourage you to 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 speak more. Really, have more conversations with friends. Uh, try, if you're introverted, to to have more conversations because it definitely uh, reaps rewards everywhere in your life. Um, in terms of the the third one, I would definitely say picking up on on red flags and recognizing when something is not for you. Now. I think a lot of people have a kind of a way where they, you know, want to want to please everyone really, and we kind of adapt ourselves, as you said earlier, Barry, in terms of being confined to prison. Sometimes, you know, you're in a situation, and and yeah, maybe you maybe you're a little bit desperate. You really need a job, and you, you know, you kind of, uh, you know. Don't overlook something that that doesn't really sit well with you but you you have to be strong and you have to ultimately pick up on those red flags uh stand your ground know what's for you know what's not um and and ultimately you know don't change yourself uh, for what somebody else wants you to be so that's definitely helped I've, I've, I've been able to grow on that in terms of the fourth one uh sort of kind of questions in an interview now a lot of a lot of interviews are sort of the the old school way of 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 thinking and and questionings how would you react in this certain circumstance and and for me that's that's sort of old-fashioned i am not a fan of those types of interviews and funnily enough two years later the sort of dialogue and the sort of questions that i've been going on have been dramatically different Uh, so it's kind of changed from tell me about a time where x happened to. How do you think you can add to this role? Tell me about your relevant experience. Um, and it's it's certainly you know it's more insightful in that you you can actually you can actually prepare for that. You can actually look at the role, look at how you can add value, um, do a bit of that thinking beforehand. And you know those types of questions l- f- make you feel a lot less uh, put on the spot, a lot less tested, and ultimately I think allow you to to shine better. Um, so I would definitely say do a bit of thought work there, um, and, and try and try and dodge those, uh, sort of sillier questions I, I would say. Um, and then, yeah, my last point, is the importance of research in the company and, and having good questions to ask. Um, I think it definitely illustrates interest when you have done the sort of extra mile in terms of making sure you know the ins and outs of what the company does, what your role is, where you would fit in in the picture and ultimately asking good questions I think is really important because it just illustrates that interest that you have. Um, so those are a couple of things that I've learned. Um, so you know if you kind of are looking at, at going back on the market sometime soon just really pick up from from some of those things that I've learned in the, the last two years. So yeah, the next one I'm quite interested about. This is a, a an article that Barry wrote that I read uh, when he wrote it a, f- a few months back. Um, I thought it was fantastic. So Barry, tell me about this.
1: Yeah, so so the reason I put this on here actually isn't because of the content of the article itself, yep. but a, a little story that happened around the article. Sure. So like you say, I wrote this article a while ago, and uh, I, it was commissioned by First Rand Bank. They commissioned me to write a four-part series on AI, and so I put an awful lot amount of work into it, and yep. I produced the four-part series, and at, at present, they've published two of the four parts, and they'll publish the next two in the, in the coming months. It was a series I was very, very proud of and I spent a lot of time on. Um, And so it was published on the first round website and I got a lot of good feedback from it. That, That kind of happened a few months ago and I got... I got a very interesting um, email, or two emails actually, uh, a few days ago, from two readers who congratulated me on this article appearing on the front page of Biz News, oh wow. a website that I knew nothing about and definitely hadn't submitted my article to. Right. So I, I read, I read these lovely emails and and uh, was very confused. And so I typed in Biz News into my my browser, and there it was. There was my my article on the front page. And what they had done is that they had written a three or four line um, paragraph at the top, kind of explaining the content of the article. And then I republished my article in full. Yeah. And it also misspelled my name. So at this stage, I was I was a little bit pissed off because what it looked like from my perspective was that they had simply stolen the article of the first round website and had republished it for their own audience, which they were selling ads on. So they were making money off this without any permission being granted. No one spoke to me about it. And I, I, if I didn't get the email from the reader, I never would have found out about it. Right. Yeah. And this is also the the third time that I've had an article that's been like blatantly, well, what I thought was blatantly plagiarized and taken and republished in full on another platform, right? So I got very angry and uh, I got pissed off and I sent a rather snarky email to Biz News to say, what the hell is going on? Can you just take, <laughs> who gave you permission to, to take my article and republish it? Yeah. And I got a email back, which was a very humbling moment when they told me that, no, 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 um, First Rand has sponsored this part of the, the, the website right. and they're going to be publishing one of the articles every single week. <laughs> and immediately I realized that I jumped to this crazy conclusion of like blatant plagiarism and I'd got myself in a bit of a tiz and kind of got very angry and pissed off. Yeah. And this very polite email coming back, explaining to me that no, 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 relax, First Rand has has given permission and has, has actually sponsored <laughs> this piece, um, really put me in my place. So the reason I'm bringing it up is because a lot of times we kind of, we assume malice or we assume ill intent on the part of somebody else so we see something happen a friend does something or someone does something to us and we immediately go to the worst case scenario yep. they're betraying us or they don't like us or whatever the self-talk in our head is yep. and if i had just taken a moment to find out the real story and the real reason my article was republished on that site i wouldn't have gone for all that emotion and i wouldn't have looked like a jerk when i emailed them to say what the hell is going on yep. And so I'm bringing it up to say, we need to to think, and I'm talking to myself here, I and we (laughs) need to think more carefully about not assuming the worst in people and not assuming malice and actually finding out what the story is first before we make some sort of emotional response. And once you find out, if we find out that cool, it it was plagiarized, then my emotional response is reasonable and appropriate. But in this case, it simply wasn't and I jumped to it too quickly. So yeah, that, that's, that's kind of the story. Um, I just thought I'd share that with you guys. And Chad, I don't know what you think about that if I handled it too, too roughly. Um, but it, it was one of those things where I'm very protective of my work. And so to see it republished like that, I was very concerned about it.
0: I, I think your reaction is, is fair. And I think a lot of us would have reacted in in an equal way. Um, and I think I think it's I think it's amazing that you you know have been sort of vulnerable enough in, in letting us know this experience. And uh, you know ultimately we're all we're all uh, basically. I'm gonna take I'm gonna take a quote from your article. I hope you don't mind if I, <laughs> if I uh, mention it on this. Video. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> that was a joke. That was a joke. <laughs> um, but but yeah, essentially this this quote, which I think is uh, is incredible, when you examine it. The way we label each other is holding us back. I am not my job title. I am a unique human being, complex, flawed, and a walking contradiction. And I think this experience is is that exactly. We are all constantly evolving, constantly learning. And I think if we're able to be serious with ourselves and each other and, uh, you know, just Ultimately, admit when we've reacted a little bit too quickly, um, and share basically share our share our journeys and strive to be better. Um, I think I think that's the the sort of ultimate goal. So thanks for that experience. Um, I, I honestly would have probably reacted in the same way, um, but yeah, definitely a, a good way of looking at it now that you that you've got that information. Shall we move on to the next one? Yep. Yeah. What's on your mind? Cool. So, what's on your mind? Again, this is the section where we collect information, basically, we collect a question from one of our listeners, either through the Anchor app, which has a voice note functionality, um, or, yeah, any other, basically any other channels you can get hold of us. So, essentially, this one, you know, I don't want to kind of, I know we've, we're pretty much over schedule already with a really long podcast but uh, this was a question that came in from Nadia um, in which she asked what kind of training did you do for Ironman 70.3 Barcelona so basically last year kind of at the same time I know we spoke about the the new year goals a few weeks back yeah um, I basically uh, put myself in the deep end in registering for a half Ironman had never done anything of the sort had never done any real professional swims um, not professional but any sort of uh, noteworthy swims and not had never really done any any cycling either so really just put myself in the deep end pushed my boundaries and set myself a a challenge to do this uh, in in may which was may uh, may of this year Um, so in terms of the training obviously you know kind of we we all we all like to keep active and healthy so when signing up to something like this there was obviously a, a natural shift towards endurance so personally, I think the human body is an incredible thing and is capable of a lot more than we give it credit so you know Barry, I know you yourself have have done sort of half marathons before, and just in terms of that mental shift, I think you know I'd, I'd like to kind of hear your take on it so in the beginning when you first started running, five kilometers seemed like a far distance right so if we if we think about you know just Our general walking obviously in south africa you know we do a lot of our our commuting in, in cars and and you know not not too much walking um but yeah so when you kind of progressed from okay now 5k is a normal thing how did you make that shift to a a 21
1: yeah. So kind of, you, you kind of touched on the key thing there. It becomes mental, right? It, it goes beyond the physical and becomes mental. So in that initial stage, it's an act of getting off the couch. It's the act of getting your body into a state where you can get your heart rate up and it can yeah. keep going for a regular amount of time. But there reaches a point, and I would say it's probably around the 10K mark or so, mm-hmm. where once you get to 10Ks, you can do any distance after that Definitely. physically, um, if you believe you can, and if you can push through the mental pain, you're going to go through throughout that experience. Yep. Um, and so what the reason people don't, aren't able to push on to half marathons and marathons and ultras and stuff is purely mental. It's, yep. it's a belief thing that I can't actually do it. What we've, what, what you find with guys who do these crazy marathons, and I'm very inspired by a lot of the guys who are running hundred mile races and 200 mile races and crazy, crazy things. You, you, you listen to them speak and they say that they thought the body would give up. They thought the body would, would, would quit. They thought that the body wouldn't be able to do it. And the body just keeps going. It keeps going, it keeps going, it keeps going. And so it's a mental battle. It's being able to push through that pain and and understand that the only the only way to finish something like that is just not to quit. And every single, every single minute you want to quit because your body hurts and everything hurts and you're breathing heavily and you want to stop. And the guys that finish those races are the guys who don't quit. And yep. so that's why i think that's where it comes from i don't know if you agree with that
0: completely completely agree with that so yeah i mean basically i had the same thing and i think you know the park movement is really good at at basically showing us how you know how 5k is, is is fairly normal really um and essentially as you say you know you kind of start gradually working your way up on the distance front until you get to a point where you know i'm not really doing any any training session unless it's 10k because you know that's what's now meaningful for me. And as you said, as soon as you get past that mental shift, I think that's that's the first thing, is your body is capable of doing this. Um, anyone who doesn't know what a half Ironman is, it's uh, basically 1.9 kilometers swim, 90 kilometers cycle, followed by a half marathon 21 kilometers of running Um, and so i think when you get to that mental shift in terms of i can do this your training sessions become a lot more productive and that's the thing you need you need to obviously uh you know in in various courses that we've done before um the basically the mantra of practice how you play is really important so of course you need to be doing these distances in your in your training um and ultimately in the training you sort of gradually work your way up in terms of distances um, obviously I started with with the running bit and then in terms of all the others this is where the the power of, of something called brick sessions becomes really important so brick sessions are basically the act of, of doing multiple exercises within one session and that's obviously key in triathlon because in triathlon you're you're changing transitioning from One discipline to another and so this is a really important tool that you really need to be doing when you're preparing for an event like this um, is is doing these brick sessions now you don't have to be doing the same sort of distance every sort of week Um, you know I like to kind of build in one long distance session but certainly the brick sessions could be something as simple as 20 or 30 kilometers on the bike and you know 10 kilometers run so you don't have to do the actual distances but I think switching between the disciplines in the session is really powerful now the next thing, if you are busy with your you know New Year's goal and you've decoded our episode on "I want a six pack by September uh, <laughs> next year" and you know you kind of want to want to give yourself a new challenge, I believe that now is actually a really really great time to start uh, training and to start triathlon. So if it's something that it could be interesting for you. You want to lose weight. You want to become more healthy. Obviously, you know, it, it's a cardiovascular discipline and, and, you know, really good for health and, and general well-being. But also want to really break through those mental barriers. I think that now's a really good time because there's an app called Zwift, which uh, is really powerful in training through winter when you can't go out on the roads. I know, Barry, it's nice and sunny there out <laughs> where you are. But where I am, it's freezing and wet and, uh, you know not great outside so Zwift is an app that allows you to basically put your bicycle on top of a turbo trainer log on to either computer cell phone ipad and you are transformed into a virtual world where you are literally cycling with others um again you know in terms of looking in terms of looking ahead yeah this is this is great tech um and in terms of the the workouts that they have loaded on there um they have basically launched a tri academy 2020 and anyone can sign up, and essentially what that has is a, a preset list of workouts on, on the bike and uh, running as well if you want. All you need is a, a basically a treadmill that you have access to, and of course you need to buy a, a track of sorts. But certainly if you're keen to get going, I think now is a great time. Uh, definitely look up the Zwift Tri Academy. Uh, this is not sponsored at all, um, but yeah, I definitely think now is a good time to to get into triathlon. And then, yeah, just the last point on this um is you know just the experience and the personal achievement of of doing something like this um it was uh, basically I've, I've i've done a i've done a vlog uh, on my YouTube channel of basically the whole experience, and you know kind of the hype and and the the sort of nerves and the excitement leading up to the race itself um and yeah, just in terms of finishing it, I think setting a goal that is that is really big for you and and coming across the other side um, definitely is is in- incredibly rewarding um, and I would certainly recommend anyone to, to go through something like this of course it takes a bit of training um, but you know for me I didn't do as much training as I would have thought uh, you know maybe three or four sessions a week plus a long one on a weekend um, and I really just split the disciplines in terms of shorter sessions and really just built in one or two brick sessions on the weekend um, that's really all it took for me um, but as Barry said I think mental mental shift is, is needed and you know we are capable of amazing things. Let's all achieve our our true potential.
1: Totally agree. And, and Chad, I must say I was very inspired by by watching your journey and watching your training process and seeing you finish that. I knew and, and I knew it mattered a lot to you and kind of when I was watching that I kinda of got the bug as well. And so maybe one day I'm gonna get into that world. Um Ooh, so that a great suggestions. Yeah.
0: There we go. Fantastic. Well yeah that would be good. We'd get to see you on Zwift sometime soon. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so yeah we've we've got to the end of the episode uh this was as i said quite a long one um thanks for tuning in uh thanks thanks as always to my co-host barry um our best news of the week that you know we kind of have to leave until the end is we are now on apple podcasts yes please (laughs) there we go there we go apple finally let us in their house (laughs) <laughs> we're finally there so we're now on the two we really wanted to be on um obviously spotify being really popular and apple Podcasts as well so thanks for tuning in if you've got an android we're also on google podcasts um and some other platforms like breaker overcast pocket casts radio public we're everywhere um so yeah thanks for tuning in and uh yeah barry thanks again from from your side and yeah ho- hopefully has to a good week ahead
1: Definitely, definitely. Thank you, Chad. I think it was a great conversation, and uh, thanks to everyone. All the all the encouraging messages are really cool. So thank you so much, everyone who's who said positive things and are messaging us and saying uh, that they're listening in and they're enjoying the conversation. We really do appreciate it
0: awesome thanks and yeah i mean this week was i guess uh you know we, we we covered a lot of things we went a little bit deeper than i think we have in in, in previous weeks so certainly subscribe <laughs> and and stick around uh we'll try and keep to the one hour mark going forward uh, but yeah thanks for tuning in it's episode three of across the pond we'll see you next week pond, across the pond with barry and chad